invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is in the New Testament, and if you're not familiar with your Bibles, that's certainly okay. If you want to use the red Bibles and the chairs around you, you'll find our passage today on page 977. We're going to be looking at the first part of Ephesians chapter 3. So we're jumping back into a series that we started back in the fall, uh, took a break uh, during the Sundays in Advent, and now coming back uh, to uh, where we left off. We finished at the end of chapter 2, uh, and so we are beginning where uh, we finished in chapter 3, verse 1. And so I'm going to read uh, chapter 3, verse 1, down through verse 13. For this reason, I, Paul... A prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for giving it to the Apostle Paul so long ago as he wrote this letter to Christian people halfway around the world. And Father, by the work of your Spirit, you not only have preserved your word so that we can read it and know that we are reading your very words, but Father, you've also caused it to be such that we can learn from it. That even though it was written to people so far away so long ago, it still has application for us today. And so we pray for your Spirit to open our hearts and our minds to see wonderful things from this portion of your word. Father, I pray that you would be at work causing us to grow in our love for you and our love for each other. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It is truly amazing and fascinating how words change meanings over time. I came across an article this past week from the Washington Post, uh, a Post article from 2015. The author was looking at 24 different words that mean totally different things now than they did before the internet came to be. Just a generation ago, about 25 years before. Like the word cloud. And you look out today and you see a nice covering in the sky. 
Sometimes it's those white puffy things that we enjoy looking at, maybe even seeing various animals and designs in the sky and the clouds. Uh, But it's something that contains water. And occasionally that water is released and it comes down in the form of rain or that other white stuff that we don't mention during this time of the year. But now the cloud is very different. When we talk about the cloud today, we're talking about the online processing and storage of data and documents in places that we're not quite sure where they are. A friend... Someone that we enjoy being with, somebody that we know, somebody we have affection for, esteem, somebody that we can go and have coffee with. Versus today, it's someone that we add to our social contact list. If you're part of Facebook, then you know you can send a friend request to someone and they can become part of your social network. A tablet. Something that used to be referred to, a a notebook of paper or some other kind of writing surface where things are written down. Today, when you refer to a tablet, you're talking about probably something like this, an actual computer that has a touchscreen attached to it. A text, something that is... Perhaps a book or a piece of writing, especially something that we study, like perhaps Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Versus today, when we speak about a text, we most often are talking about sending a message via electronic, uh, electronic device. Send me a text message. It's, it's really quite amazing, if you think about it, about how the English language changes over time. And how much more so would be the case, and is the case, with the changing of words in different languages over not just a generation, but over thousands of years. We have an example of that today here in our passage that we're considering. It's the word mystery. Four times in these verses, Paul uses that word mystery in verse 3, verse 4, verse 6, and verse 9. Now, when we hear the word mystery, when we think about mystery, you think about maybe a movie that you've watched recently or a book that you've read. It has this kind of uh, sense in our own language of something that is unknown, something that, that we can't see, that is unseen, and we try to figure it out. Especially if you're reading a book, a mystery book, or if you're watching a mystery uh, a movie or TV show, uh, there's something that we don't know, that we know that we don't know, or we're not sure that we don't know, but we're trying to figure it out. And, and uh, we spend a lot of time investigating and, and looking behind the scenes and trying to connect the dots so that we can understand it. That's almost exactly the opposite meaning of Paul's word mystery here. In the New Testament, the word mystery means something that was once hidden, but has eventually been made known or has been revealed by God. It's not something that we can understand and figure out on our own. It's something that God has to reveal to us in order for us to understand it, in order for us to see it. In order for us to know it. That's the difference between how we think of the word mystery and what Paul's word mystery means here. And that's what Paul's talking about in these verses. 
And just a reminder of the context, it's been a little while since we've been in Ephesians. The letter that we're looking at was a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul in the first century to a group of Christians in the city or perhaps in the area around Ephesus, which is in modern day Turkey. And as Paul does with most of his letters, and including this one, uh, it's divided up really into kind of two main sections. The first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul is telling the Ephesian Christians what is true. He's giving them incredibly rich doctrine, theology. And in chapters 4 through 6, he moves on to tell them not only what is true, but now what they should do in response to this wonderful doctrine and theology that he's giving them. You can see that even at the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Right? He's, you can see he's already starting to transition to talk about how you're supposed to live in accord with all of these wonderful truths that he's been telling us in chapters 1 through 3. And here we are in chapter 3, still in this what is true section. But I'm guessing that, like myself, chapter 3, verses 1 through 13 are not super familiar to us. I think that many times chapter 3, verses 1 through 13 kind of get looked over. There's some incredible things that are said in chapter 2. There's some incredible things that are going to be said in chapters 4 through 6. And often we kind of jump from this deep, rich theology that we've been looking at in the previous weeks before we took the break... To what he's going to be saying about how we apply that in the following chapters. And chapter 3 verses 1 through 13 doesn't get a lot of attention. I think there's probably some reasons for that. One that we'll talk about in a minute. Paul's actually in a digression. You can see that because there's a little dash in your, probably in your translations there after verse 1. He, he's actually on a rabbit trail. And if we're honest, the rabbit trail is a little confusing. <laughs> It seems like he's rambling and kind of wandering around and it doesn't seem to connect with anything else that he's been saying. I actually reviewed a number of different sermons and commentaries by people uh, on these verses over this past week. And I found almost as many different uh, interpretations and explanations of these verses as the number of people that I was looking at. But I believe that there is for us today here this morning substantial meat to chew on, both in the meaning of what Paul is saying and in the application of what that means for us as we would reflect on this idea of the mystery that he is talking about. So what I want us to look at are, are four things, uh, four simple things. First, what this mystery is. Secondly, what Paul says that this mystery creates. Thirdly, how this mystery is made known. And then lastly, what he says about what help it brings for us, what help this mystery brings to us. So first of all, what does Paul say that this mystery is? Well, I mentioned to you just a minute ago that Paul begins verse 1 and then digresses. And really, verses 2 through 13 are his digression. It's his rabbit trail. And in those verses, during in the rabbit trail, is where he starts talking about this idea of a mystery. If you look at verses 2 and following, he says, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery has been, was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations as it has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets 
by the Spirit. So he begins this digression and then he starts talking about this idea of the mystery. This mystery of God. This this mystery that has been revealed to Paul and he is now talking to his people about. And then we come to verse 6. What is the mystery? Well, he tells us very plainly. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus Through the gospel. What is the mystery that he's referring to? The mystery that he's talking about is that Gentiles and Jews who are God's people are now united together. They are, as he says, fellow heirs. They are heirs together. They are members together of the same body that is the church. They are partakers of the same promises of God. And notice he tells us how they have been united together in verse 6. At the end he says, in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul continues in verse 7 to talk about this gospel of which he has been made a minister to proclaim to the people of God. So what is the mystery that Paul is talking about in these verses? The mystery is nothing less than the gospel of God's grace through faith. In Jesus Christ. It is the wonderful story that we have been recounting recently of the coming of Jesus into this world to live a life of perfect love and obedience to his father. Of his offering his life on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. Of the people of God having their sins put on to Jesus and him dying to pay for those sins once and for all. Of Jesus' righteous record of love and obedience being credited to the accounts of God's people. So that they are declared just and righteous in God's sight forever. It is the wonderful reminder of the fact that we are adopted into God's family and given the status of his beloved children. And all of this is undeserved, it's unearned, it is a free gift, completely by grace, received by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. This is the mystery that Paul is describing here. And notice he says in verses 4 and 5, that this, is, this mystery, this gospel, is not something that had been fully made known in the Old Testament. It was not made known and explained completely all at once in God's providence, because of his wisdom, because of his decisions, because of his providence. He slowly and progressively over many years revealed this wonderful message of the gospel, this mystery of the gospel. Now, if you're a Christian here this morning, what Paul is saying here about what this mystery is should fill us with both thankfulness as well as a sense of of connection and belonging. Thankfulness. Think of it this way. In God's providence, according to His sovereign will, you are alive in 2019. Not in 2019 BC, but in 2019 AD. What, what, a, what a blessing we have as God's people that this mystery is not something that is a mystery to us. As God's people, we now have the full revelation of the mystery. We, we know we, are, we have God's word. We have the spirit testifying to our spirit of the wonder of this mystery of the gospel of grace. 
It should fill us with thankfulness that according to God's providence, he has given us the privilege and the responsibility of living now when that revelation is complete. When we understand what it is, when it has been clearly given to us through the word. But we should also, as we reflect on this, be filled with a sense of belonging and connection. Yes, our faith in Christ is about our individual relationship with our Father in heaven. But it is also something that connects us with God's people now. And it grafts us into the story of God's work with his people from thousands of years ago. All the way back to the Garden of Eden. And the very first promise of Jesus. If you are here this morning as a Christian, then you are a part of this wonderful unfolding, progressively unfolding story of God revealing the wonder and mystery of his gospel of grace. You belong not simply to your own individual family. You belong not simply to the father, your father in heaven. You belong to this wonderful story and you are heirs of that wonderful story as well. And that leads us to see the second thing that Paul is saying about this mystery. What this mystery creates. This mystery, this gospel that he's talking about, creates or brings about something. Look again at verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He's talking about the unity of all of God's people. Jews and Gentiles being united together. This is what the mystery creates. It creates this this fellowship, this body of fellow heirs and members and partakers. We now as God's people are united and connected together. So that as he says in verse 12, now together we all have boldness and access with confidence to God. Every one of us equally has the privilege of coming before our Father, not only as individuals, but together as his people. You can see Paul getting at this in verse 10 as well. He says that so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. This mystery of the gospel of grace is the manifold wisdom of God being revealed to all of creation. That word, manifold, and the manifold wisdom is a fascinating term. It literally means a multicolored piece of artwork. Now reflect on what he is saying here for a moment. Like a beautiful, colorful tapestry is God's people put together. This word that's used here for for, for manifold is the same word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 37 to refer to Joseph's coat of many colors. This is what the church is. This is what the gospel of grace creates. This artwork made up of many different beautiful colors that are woven together. Just consider our own little church. How many different kinds of people do we have that are a part of our own little fellowship? All of the different backgrounds and experiences and upbringings, vocations and socioeconomic backgrounds and even views on various things. But in the midst of all of those things which are wonderful things, we are united together by something that is bigger and more powerful than those things. We are united by a gospel 
that not only unites us to our Heavenly Father, but unites us to each other. It's what some theologians refer to as a double union. That because we are united to Christ by faith, we are united to one another. I'm united to Christ by faith. You are united to Christ by faith. And therefore we are united to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And there's a really intriguing and cool thing going on here. If you look back at the chapter, of chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. I know it's been a long time since we looked at this passage. But just remind yourself of what Paul began saying. He actually brought up this whole idea of the mystery all the way back in chapter 1. And in verse 7 he says, In Christ we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. And if you remember back to when we were covering that passage, we, we talked about this wonderful truth that God, in ways that we can't even imagine, is causing all things to be united together, all good things united together in Christ. He's at work doing that right now. And in the fullness of time, when that day comes, it will be completed and we will stand back and we will see all things united together in Christ. But what Paul is telling us is that that's already begun. It's begun even in this room as we have been not only united to Christ by faith, we are united to one another. Do you see this wonderful, beautiful picture of what God is already doing? We as a church, Trinity Presbyterian Church, are a a picture to ourselves and to a watching world of of the work that God is doing of uniting all things together. And we see it only in little ways now, but we will one day see it in its completion. This ought to be both a great encouragement and a great, a, motiva- a great motivation for us. It's encouragement. We ought to, every single time that we gather together, whether it's on Sunday morning, as we come into this room, as we gather for Sunday school, as we gather on Wednesday evenings, in small groups, for youth group, whatever it might be, as we gather together as God's people, we ought to take a moment and just step back and be in awe. Be in awe of what God is doing. There are so many ways that if we were not united to Christ and united to one another, we might not ever know each other. There are so many differences that we have with one another that we might not necessarily ever meet someone and become friends with them, but we have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and because of that we are united to one another. That ought to give us a sense of awe and thanksgiving and praise to God. But it also ought to be a source of motivation for us to celebrate what God is doing in our midst and to actually get to know these other brothers and sisters in Christ that we will have the privilege and the blessing of spending all eternity worshiping the Lord and enjoying the Lord with. There's a third thing here that Paul helps us to understand about this mystery and that is how the mystery is made known. Look again at verses 8 through 10. Paul says to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone 
What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? So that, verse 10, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. Paul says that this wonderful mystery of the gospel, this manifold wisdom of God of how we are united to Christ by faith and we are united to one another in fellowship and communion, this wonderful mystery is being revealed how? Through the church. It is God's plan to reveal the mystery of the gospel through the church, through the organization of the church, as Paul will later talk about, the structure of the church, officers, and and the way that it's set together, but also through the organism of the church, the, the people of God. And notice he says in verse 11 that this isn't some plan that he came up with after the fall. This is the plan that is the eternal plan of God. It's always been his plan that God would reveal the mystery of the gospel through the church. The church is in some kind of plan B. Now it is true that God works through various and sundry ways to bring his people to faith in Christ. But I think what Paul is reminding us here is that the primary way that God does that is through the church. That's why our own... Uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, our confessional standard says that outside of the church, there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Yes, sometimes people come to faith in Christ through reading books or through reading the Bible themselves or watching a TV preacher or attending a Billy Graham crusade or being involved with a campus ministry in college or being involved in some other parachurch ministry or simply by just observing creation. All of those are wonderful ways that God brings people to faith in Christ. But what Paul's saying is that the ordinary, the usual way that the mystery of the gospel of grace is made known is through the church. It is through the word being preached. It is through the sacraments being celebrated, participated in. It's through the worship of God's people, through the fellowship of God's people. If you ever noticed, I hope you have, we talk about it often, that when you come to church on a Sunday morning here, at least three times, you're going to have the gospel preached to you if we're doing it right. The service itself walks us through the gospel as we remember the holiness and the majesty of God as we start our service. As we have our eyes turned up to worship the one true God and we're reminded of his law, his, his call for his people to follow him. And then we are moved to confess our sins and to acknowledge how we fail to honor Him as our God and the the majesty and the beauty of His holiness and to live in response to that. And then we hear the promises of God of the assurance of His grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. And then we respond with thanksgiving in our hearts by giving Him praise and honor. Number one. Number two. Through the preaching of the Word. Every single Sunday, it is our effort, it is our desire, it is our hope, it is our plan to see the gospel in God's word. Number three, we come to the table weekly and we once again see God's grace to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. It is what we do on Sunday at the church. We preach the gospel, we make the mystery of the gospel known to those of us who gather and worship in the church. 
So what that means is that the church as the place for gathering and perfecting of God's people should be one of the very most important things to us. It is fine, it is good, it is useful for us to use our time and our treasures and our talents in Christian ministries outside of the church. But the church should always be the very first importance for us, the very highest priority of our lives. John Stott in his commentary on these verses said, We should not take lightly that which God takes so seriously. Now I realize that this is a little self-serving. That's not beyond my understanding. But I do hope that you feel and understand too that we try not to be heavy-handed with this understanding of this and try to guilt you or browbeat you in some way with this doctrine of the highness of the church. And for the most part, I would say this is not a big deal for us at Trinity in terms of it being a problem. We have much to be encouraged about as a church because of the ways that you believe what Paul is saying here. But it is good on on periodic times occasionally for us to evaluate how we're doing on that. If I never put myself under the authority and the accountability of the institution that God has established for that to take place... If I rarely participate in the primary means by which God displays the mystery of his gospel, if I rarely or ungenerously share my time and treasures and talents in the primary place that God has set up for me to do so, then something's out of whack. He calls us to see the highness and the importance of the church through which he reveals the mystery of the gospel. One last thing that Paul says here about this mystery He talks to us a little bit about the help that this mystery brings us. And as we've been talking about, verses 1 through 13 is, uh, verses 2 through 13 are essentially a digression that Paul is making from his main point that he wanted to say. If you look at verse 1, you can see it clearly. He says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ, Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, then you've got that little dash that the the, the ESV and other uh, versions have inserted into the text there. And then if you look at verse 14, for this reason, you see it in verse 1, you see it in verse 14, Paul's picking up his thought and in between he has this digression that he's going on. So what got him started down this digression? What got him started down this rabbit trail? He started in verse 1 by reminding the Ephesian Christians that he was in prison. I, Paul, a prisoner... For the Lord Jesus Christ. And he ends verse 13 by saying he doesn't want the Ephesian Christians to lose heart over what he was suffering. Right? And in between he has this digression about the mystery of the gospel. This wonder of God's grace. So what is going on here? Paul knows that these people know about his suffering. He knows that they know that he's in prison. As he's writing these things, probably shackled to a guard, even as he's writing the words. But he also knows that they probably most likely have a sense of the greater life of suffering that Paul has dealt with in general. In an earlier letter that he wrote to a different church, the second letter that he wrote to the Corinthian church, Paul spent 16 verses talking about his suffering that he was going through. I'm not going to read all 16 of those verses, but let me just read to you a couple of the verses that Paul brings up in 2 Corinthians 11. He says in verse 24, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. 
On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? Paul reminds us, if anybody understood what suffering was like, he understood what suffering was like. But he doesn't want the Christians in Ephesus to lose heart or to be crushed or to be devastated by all the suffering. So what does he do? What's the help that he gives them so that they won't be crushed? He goes to the gospel. He points to the gospel in verses 2 through verse 13. He reminds them that they have unity with their Father in heaven through the Lord Jesus Christ. That they have unity with one another. That they are now fellow heirs and members and partakers of the promises of the gospel. That they have fellowship with God's people. Paul points to the help that the gospel brings in the midst of suffering. That there are few of us in this room that will ever go through the extent of suffering that Paul experienced. But we still experience suffering that is substantial. Perhaps it's physical. Perhaps it's emotional. Perhaps it's spiritual. Even just the reality of death that we experience. And we have had plenty of it at Trinity over the last two months. Regardless of whether our suffering is great or small, what Paul is reminding the Ephesian Christians and us this morning is that our faith in Christ provides us with a hope to persevere through our suffering. Notice what Paul says about this suffering in verse 1. He is a prisoner for Christ Jesus. He doesn't see himself as a prisoner of Rome or a prisoner of some foreign government or some governing authorities. He knows they are not the ones in control. God is. Paul knows that God has has a sovereign plan even in the midst of his suffering. That even in the midst of his suffering, Paul knows that God is at work. That there is purpose behind it, even if Paul doesn't know what it is, or he doesn't get to understand why. That somehow God is building his church and his kingdom, that he is forming and shaping his people with the gospel for his glory. In other words, Paul understands that suffering is not for nothing. And notice one other thing here. Paul says that his suffering isn't just about him. Do you see how he says that? He says it twice, actually. In verses 1 and 13, he talks about the fact that he's suffering on behalf of you Gentiles. The end of the passage in verse 13, I'm suffering for you. So he understands his suffering isn't all about him. He's suffering for the sake of the gospel. He's suffering for the sake of the people that he's serving. But then we've got this really bizarre thing that he says in verse 10. He says he's made the, 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 the manifold wisdom of God is being made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. It's an intriguing and mysterious thing that he's saying here. Somehow, God is at work through what Paul is going through, through to bring about the revealing of the mystery of the gospel of grace 
this manifold wisdom of God such that the spiritual beings in the heavenly places are watching. I'll tell you, I don't completely understand what that means or the implications of that, except for it's not all about Paul. He's suffering for the sake of the Gentiles. He's suffering for the sake of the gospel. And somehow, even the spiritual beings in heaven are watching. And God is accomplishing His purpose. So what does all this mean? Suffering is real. It will be a part of our experience in this life. It is not good in and of itself. It's it's a result of the fall. But it's not purposeless. It's not meaningless. Even if we can't see the purpose or the meaning, even if we can't see what God is doing, we can know that God is at work through it. And the way that we can persevere through our suffering is to remember the hope And the mystery of the gospel of grace. As he says in verse 12, that through Christ we have boldness and access with confidence to our Father in heaven. And as he said to the Romans, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things that we need to persevere to the end? So in the midst of our suffering and our trials of all kinds, we have hope and we have help. Because we know the mystery of the gospel. We know that God's grace and love has united us to himself securely and eternally. And we know that because that that is the case, we have union with one another. And so we can share in the hope and the trials and the difficulties as we might build one another up. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you with wonder and amazement. This this mystery of your gospel that you, over so many years, in so many ways, revealed to your people. What a privilege, what a blessing it is for us to be able to have your word completed. To have this mystery revealed. To have somebody like the Apostle Paul describing it to us. I pray, Father, that as we read it, you would open our eyes to see the wonders of your truth and to understand the mysteries of this gospel of grace. Help us to believe it. And as we do, Father, fill us with all hope as we see the the fellowship and the unity and the communion that we have, not just with you, but with one another. May we lift one another up. May we walk this journey that you have put us on together. May we be filled with hope and peace as we seek to glorify you, to enjoy you together. Remind us of these same things, Father, as we come now to your table, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In the Gospel of Matthew, we read that as Jesus and the disciples were eating, Jesus took bread, after blessing it, broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. In many ways, the Lord's Supper is a picture for us of this double union that we referred to uh, in the, earlier in the sermon. 
It points us to the union that we have with our Heavenly Father, the union that we have in Christ Jesus. That through His body that has been given for us and His blood that has been spilled for us, as we put our faith in Him, we are united to Him. In other words, what we deserve to get, what our sin deserved to get, is put on Jesus, and what He deserved to get is given to us. That union we have with Him. But it's also a picture of the union that we have with each other. We've talked about this before, even the way the room is set up. Reminds us of this community, of this fellowship. I don't know if you've ever thought about the fact that both Pastor John and I, when we administer the Lord's Supper, we don't stand behind the pulpit, we come down here. We're all together. It's a picture as we eat and drink together, looking around the room, of the unity that we have in Christ Jesus with one another. So when we partake, this table is meant to be a great encouragement to us. We are supposed to remember the wonderful promises of the gospel that are ours in Christ. We're supposed to remember the, the, the wonderful truth of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in us. We're supposed to remember the fellowship that we have with each other. But this table is also given to us to strengthen our faith. As we remember those things, but also as we partake in faith, as we believe in Christ, as we trust in Him and we eat, the Holy Spirit is at work. Taking what we're doing and strengthening us so that as we go out this week, we can actually believe this wonderful mystery of the gospel of grace. We can actually go forth with, with strength and hope because of what He has done for us. So if you're here this morning and you have made a public profession of your faith in Christ and connected yourself with God's people, if you have uh, done that publicly at Trinity or another church that believes and teaches God's word is true, then as the elements are coming around, eat and drink and remember all these wonderful things that are true for you and about you. And remember the wonderful truth that as you partake in faith, even a weak faith, that the Holy Spirit is present, taking what we're doing and strengthening us. Let's pause for a moment and thank the Lord for giving us this table. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for giving us the Lord's Supper, this means of grace. We pray, Father, that as we come to this table, as we eat and drink, we do pray that you would help us to remember these wonderful truths, that they would not be something that we just simply assent to, but that we actually would believe them in our heart of hearts, clinging to your righteousness, clinging to the message of forgiveness, clinging to this wonderful truth that we truly are your people and fellow heirs and members of your household. I pray, Father, that you would be at work in powerful ways to the Holy Spirit to do that today. Send us out with great encouragement, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.